We need to present a viable alternative to Democrats. We need to focus on where liberalism is failing. So we need to run candidates that, you know, present a strong alternative. And I think mutual aid is really important as well in building up an answer that is not reliant on the state. And I think also making sure we're intersectional. Okay, welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. It's been a while since we had an episode, and I'm glad to be back. I was able to find the right combination of volunteers to be on the show, plus time to set aside to record, and so I have two episodes coming pretty soon back-to-back. Not much to talk about on the life update front. Uh, Still teaching remotely. That'll probably change at some point in April. And uh, the local hospital here is uh, stepping up to vaccinate all the workers in my school district, so I'll be getting vaccinated soon, like a lot of you. And I continue to try to keep myself as busy as possible, despite, you know, pretty much being trapped inside the apartment still um, with the pandemic. In this episode, I speak with Theodore. I know Theodore through my local chapter of the DSA. We cover a lot of ground, and I I think we had an interesting conversation. And there are a few things that I'd probably like to dig a little deeper on with him. Maybe I can try to have him on another time. As with the previous episode with Daniel, we're profiling uh, socialists this season. Because I think uh, socialists, uh, we are a largely misunderstood lot. And I think it's fascinating to hear people's political evolution and see how they they got to where they're at now. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Theodore. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome to another episode of Brian Talks to Humans. Glad to be back. Uh, Today's human is? Theodore Longwa. All right, Theodore. Thanks for taking the time uh, on this Sunday to uh, record a a podcast with me that, that nobody listens to. I'm glad to be here. The, the, before we get to the context that I know you from, uh, let's get a little bit of um, background on on uh, on where you're where you've been. Uh, so you're so you just moved to Alabama now, but you said you you grew up in uh, in Texas. Yeah, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, which is like this like it's a city. Um, about two hours south of San Antonio, four hours north of Mexico. And it's really like kind of a town that doesn't know what it is. So there's an oil rig, there's a naval base, it's a tourism town. It, there, you know, are, it's agriculture and farming, like the second you get outside of town. Um, and, and I really grew up like, Nothing in Corpus is for the locals. It's all for like the big oil companies that are take that are you know raping the planet. It's from it's for the tourists that come to town, you know, and pillage the grocery stores, overrun everything, and then leave, you know. Mm. And so uh, 
you know, tax rates are given to the oil corporations, yet half the schools are failing. Mm-hmm. And something always felt wrong um, about the way that it was set up. And it's also a place that nobody cares about, you know, like during COVID, like during August or so during COVID, for example, like we had huge infant mortality numbers due to due to COVID. Growing up, you know, it's the capital of below the knee amputations due to diabetes. You know, it's a place that healthcare disparities are huge and and nothing's being done about it. And also there's a lot of racial injustice. You know, it's a predominant, like, it's a predominantly Latino town, yet, you know, I grew up, you know, I was in AP classes that were almost all white, you know, and, you know, in ninth grade, when I wore a shirt supporting Barack Obama, you know, nobody sat next to in my entire row in biology. So at the time, <laughs> you know, I thought liberalism was the answer. And slowly, you know, I tried to realize that even that wouldn't solve Corpus's problems. Right. So what was family like uh, for you in, in, in that time when you were, when you were still young? Yeah. So I um, have an interesting family structure. So grew up with my mom, dad, and sister, but most of my family's adopted. So my aunt Jamie has nine kids, seven are adopted. Uncle Jeff has two kids, one's adopted, and my sister Sierra and I were basically raised as twins. She's a month and a half younger than me, and she's adopted. Mm. So family and I have some conflicts, uh, a lot of them, made me realize really early on why mental health care is important and removing that stigma is important. Mm. Uh, But it, it also really there had to be a better way, you know, way than just taking kids from their parents. And, you know, my sister got split up from her biological half-brother when we, we, we adopted her when she was three, almost four, because the foster parents couldn't handle her needs and didn't want her, but they wanted the little brother. Mm. And that was our first memory. Um, is this like year and a half long, ugly, ugly foster battle. So what was, you said you had conflicts with the family. What was, what were those conflicts about? So like, I, my dad isn't like a bad person, but he's definitely like when I think of the, like, how toxic masculinity hurts everybody. I think of my father, Mm. Uh, you know, both my parents have struggled with alcoholism for like, it's probably since I was like 10 and like my dad and I just never got along. He didn't know how to be with kids. He raged, you know, knowing how to be around children. So he expected us to be many adults since we were four. And to be strong at all moments, because he saw that, you know, weakness was how you got yourself killed. Um, And he means that literally because, you know, my grandfather was one of the first superintendents to uh, to integrate Texas public schools. So my dad moved around a lot and would have fights. 
So his motto was, you find the biggest bully in the room and you pick a fight with them. Because either you win, you, you win and everybody's afraid of you, or you lose. And everybody thinks, sure, and I don't people this language, but you're, you're crazy enough that nobody's going to fuck with you anymore. Mm. And that's what he had to do to survive, you know, when you're a small person, because he's a little man, um, five, seven, um, and your dad's doing what nobody likes and the F taps your phones and the KKK is after you. Wow. <laughs> you got to survive. He didn't really know how to be around kid and was angry all the time. And capitalism, you know, he's working a job he hated and working like 60, 70 hours a week and was just angry and bitter and took it out on us. And I, my, my mom had no one in the, uh, in the world that was on her side. She was hundreds of miles from her family. She was lonely and we were kind of codependent, to be honest. Um, and sh- she's very hard of hearing. And the world isn't built for people with disabilities. And it was, my parents also had no clue how to support my sister. And when you're adopted at three, almost four, and have been in four homes by that point, you struggle. And my parents thought they were up for the challenge. And... They weren't. So life was shitty for her. Mm. You know, and I didn't quite realize all that until I got out of it and I went to college. And I haven't lived within 2,000 and within a thousand miles of home since I left for college at 18 and I'm 27. Right. So where'd you go to college? I went to Harvard. I got an amazing financial aid. It's cheaper for me to go there than UT Austin. Um, and I was one of those kids that, you know, I, I knew I wanted, you know, somebody told me I couldn't do it when I was six and I was like, fuck that. And so I did. Um, and one of the, you know, the, you know, nerdy bullied closeted queer kid that, you know, had chronic health problems, um, and no place felt like home. So I found a place that did. Mm. And what was college like for you? Was that, um, did you find a more welcoming environment and more, more uh, uh, environment that was? Oh, yeah. For your I found, an, yeah. Oh, yeah. I loved college. I had, you know, I found some really great communities and, you know, I was really involved with rape crisis work during college, really involved. Like I was an advocate for kids with learning disabilities. I got to do a lot of like, I got to be a case manager at a student run homeless shelter. Um, you know, we had a lot of independence and a lot of resources. Like Harvard like has a shit ton of problems. Don't get me wrong. But like, there's also like, they're working on them. And, you know, when it's a place that there is no, it's it's like the post-scarcity, it's a post-scarcity world, you know, like there, you know, if you're on full financial aid, you get free tickets to see the student productions. Everybody gets 
full, you know, access to the dining halls. There's no limits to that. So you, you know, and there's a plethora of opportunities. There's huge funding. You get, you know, it like anything that you could want is right at your fingertips. Mm. So I got to like go to Peru um, for to do bioarchaeology as summer classes and only had to pay my airfare. They covered literally everything else. I got to do a fully funded internship in New York City where they covered housing and a living stipend. I, you know, got funding over the summer to work at the homeless shelter. Uh, you know, I had a stipend um, to do uh, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, peer counseling. Uh, um, but I mean, I also got to see some of the ugly underbelly of neoliberalism. I would uh, being on the debate team because um, the Harvard the debate circuit is entirely student run. So it's the same debate circuit that Ted Cruz ran when he was like, he was the director of the debate circuit when he was an undergrad at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And it really hadn't, it, it was really like on the cusp of changing when I first got there. It was still very much a good old boys white club. And it was very neoliberal, um, very elitist. You know, when I argued with some, with the captain of our debate team about, um, literacy rates in America, telling him they weren't as high as he thought they were. He told me because I came from a border town where no one could speak English, that my opinion didn't matter. Mm. And that's a direct quote. You know, I'm the only person in my year that did debate all four years because nobody else could put up with their white male bullshit. Mm. And we actually had to have what I call a gender truth and reconciliation committee. We had to bring in outside mediators and confront like the, uh, the leaders on the team about race and gender and the way they were treating people. And the team changed a lot as a result. And I got to be part of that. But, you know, I, I saw firsthand those events. And I think that's when things started to not feel right. And also, most of my roommates by accident happened to be, you know, upper middle class, white people from the Northeast. And I definitely had friends outside of that circle. My friend's group was incredibly diverse. I had a friend who was homeless before Harvard. I had friends who were trans, friends of, you know, every identity, you know, friends who were, you know, Black friends who were whiter than I was. Um, but like when talking to my white friends from the Northeast, no one could understand anything outside of that bubble. Mm. And they still say things about places like when I was moving back to Alabama because of health reasons, they came up with this convoluted scheme trying to help me, you know, that you should go drop off your cat with your sister and Texas and then move back up to Boston because no one could have them be moving back to Alabama willingly. And it made me realize like how much the Northeast thinks in California think that they are like the country that everything in between is just like flyover land mm. and just like total lack of knowledge of that part of the country. So what got you into things like, you know, the rape crisis center, the homeless shelter, uh, having truth and reconciliation for the on the debate squad? Like what, what, what pushed you in that direction to be, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, political in that, in that regard. So I definitely like, it was more direct service than like 
I didn't get involved in like direct, I, I went to protests. Like I went to a lot of Black Lives Matter protests in college. I, um, I, I think it started young. My parents were um, like pretty politically active. Like when I was seven, I remember meeting my mom at like a, um, a protest against the Iraq war because she was worried about bringing her seven-year-old. So we just met her up there afterwards and like making signs for her to hold outside Bush's ranch when um, Cindy Sheehan was camped out there to confront, to confront Bush about the loss of her son, you know? So I grew up with that, you know, and like a lot of people, like my mom had four college, three college roommates Two of them were sexually assaulted and one um, got pregnant her freshman year er, and had to drop out and her boyfriend broke up with her. So like growing up hearing about that, my mom was always very concerned about our safety in ways that sometimes were a bit much to hear about at a young age. But I knew early on that it was very dangerous to not be assigned male at birth. And... I also like seeing how like my sister struggle and how much mental health care failed her, you know, at, like when my parents tried to back out of the adoption because they um, were like, we're not splitting up kids. She, you know, if you don't want, uh, if the foster parents wanted to adopt Javier and not Sierra, I mean, to adopt Javier, they were like, cool, we won't adopt either kid. You guys can keep both of them. They were like, no, Sierra's struggling with mental health. We're going to institutionalize her if you don't take her. And she's definitely struggled in her life, but she leaves a very like typical happy life. She doesn't, there's no reason that she should ever have been in an institution. It mm. was just, you know, the foster care system wasn't set up for her. So I knew I wanted to go into mental health and I had a good friend growing up who um, that's the first person I ever dated who um, had bipolar disorder and watching him cycle in and out of hospitals at 14. I was at at 12 was the first time he went in. I was really fucking pissed off. I was like, why can't he tell people? Why does he have no friends at school? Because anytime he makes like, he stood me up at the school dance because I didn't, he he was too ashamed to tell anybody where he was because of the stigma, Mm. you know, like why is this kid, you know, in and out of institutions. And so I knew I wanted to, and at the time, the only way I knew to tackle that was through being a physician. So I was like, I want to be a child psychiatrist um, at the age of 14. And so, so a lot of that was realizing like, I know jack shit growing up white and middle class about the experiences of most people. So here are some opportunities. So I want, um, that's why I went into peer counseling started volunteering at the homeless shelter really just the opportunity just came up I was stuck on campus one spring break they said they needed volunteers and I just showed up and you know seeing people be homeless next to the richest university is the second richest nonprofit compared to the Vatican mm-hmm. and it oh like came Harvard and MIT over own over half of Cambridge so their policies are what's making people. You know, like when they buy up small businesses and jack up the rent. And so mom and pop places leave, Starbucks moves in and Starbucks doesn't let 
people like my friend Alistair, who was homeless, use the bathroom. Harvard's responsible. Sure. And, yeah. and I did a pre-orientation program at Harvard. It was nonprofit driven that really, it, it, not nonprofit driven, it was social justice driven. And I learned a lot of things in a week span. And I was like, oh, I was really problematic. I should probably work on fixing this. And <laughs> right before I got to Harvard. And that was a lot of it. And I think the huge catalyst for me was when my sister didn't graduate high school. So in Texas, you have to pay, pass a state standardized test. It's not called the STAR, but it used to be called TAX in order to pass. And Sierra has some learning disabilities. Really, she's really, really smart. Just uh, has struggles with numerical literacy due to her dyslexia. And she had A's and B's, but could not pass this fucking test. Mm. And we, we hired tutors. We did everything. And I grew up in this white middle class world where everything ended up okay. And I was in this contentious race to be valedictorian. And I cared about it so much. And it didn't even matter. I'd already gotten into Harvard early action. It didn't matter if I was valedictorian or not. But, you know, early on, back when I bought into my parents' bullshit and blamed Sierra um, and didn't look at, you know, our family structure, she and I had difficulty getting along as kids. Um, and I take full responsibility for that. And so, you know, even though by high school we were thick as thieves, I was so, I was like, I shouldn't try to tutor her. She is like, we, it doesn't work when I do that. It just causes strife. And I thought it would work out. And I don't know if it would be different if I had, but on the day I found out I was going to be valedictorian was the day I found out that Sierra had failed her last attempt at the test. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't graduate high school. Mm -hmm. And she just went into a really dark place. She's fine now, but yeah. it was really rough. And I mean, it's really hard on anyone to not graduate high school, but imagine if you're, for all intents and purposes, twin is the valedictorian. So you have to go to that fucking ceremony. All of your family's entire in town, your twin's going off to Harvard, and you're still living in your parents' house, and your parents are, and you have a contentious relationship. Yeah. It was like, I started a petition to get her, because even though she couldn't graduate, each school district could say whether or not they wanted to let kids like Sierra walk the stage. They wouldn't get a diploma, but they could walk the stage and be part of their class if they passed everything else. School, uh, we had 600 signatures. People signed from all over the world. And the school board didn't even show up for the fucking vote. Like, they just, half of them didn't show up, so the vote didn't even happen. Mm. And I had to shake their hands to walk that stage. Yeah. Uh, I, I went off mic to um, protest it. Thought they were going to cut my mic. Um, they didn't. Um, my principal was so pissed at me that she called in my favorite teacher and started grilling him to see if he knew. And the superintendent had to get involved. Like a plaque that was supposed to have my name on it. And the school didn't get put up for over a year because everybody was so fucking pissed at me. <laughs> I, I didn't give a shit anymore. I didn't even want to give the speech. I only gave it because Sierra told me to. And that's when I realized how self-centered I'd been. They cared so much about this title that meant literally nothing. After high school, it wouldn't matter if he was valedictorian. That I didn't even notice what was going on. And the it like sits feet from me. 
And I just thought it would be okay because magical white money. I don't know. Mm. And I had a lot to atone for. And I found for me that, like, once you start getting involved in service, and I had tutored, and I think that was another thing, is another form, I had tutored, you know, since the seventh grade. And I remember tutoring, um, in order to go to summer school, you could only be failing a certain classes. And so they had kids, they had a um, clinic at our middle school for kids who were failing too much to go to summer school. And so we could like help them do recovery in a short period of time. And I got pulled up. They basically let me skip school for like two weeks in order to tutor kids, which tells you a lot about how useless my middle school was. That even the middle school was like, hey, you're not learning anything. It's after standardized test. You can just tutor. And I was tutoring this, kid, this eighth grader who terrified me until she saw me. And she was like, I, I have to pass. I have to get out of school as soon as possible because I need to start working to, to help support my family. Right. And I was like, and these are the type of kids, I tutored a lot of the kids who bullied me and seeing what they were struggling with. I was like, oh, I get it. Now I get why they're, they're bullying because I have every opportunity in the world and they're worried about putting food on the table for their little sister. And I think those two experiences, you know, really propelled me into service. But then it's one of those things, uh, once you start doing one thing, you start to realize the intersections yeah. and you have to tackle it from another angle. And I think that combined with the 2016 election, which is right after I graduated college, and I was out of that neoliberal sphere and in Birmingham, is what, like, got me into the DSA. Right. And so, and that's where I, I know you from. So how did you, so basically it was a, it was a 2016 election, Trump, Bernie kind of thing that, that pushed you in, into becoming a, a, a DSA member? Yeah. So I was dating someone at the time who, like, shit person, but introduced me to the DSA. So there's good in that. And, I mean, like, I wasn't for Bernie all the way at the point. Like, because I was, I didn't see socialism as viable. And then after the election, like, I personally believed in it. I saw it as, like, I believe this will work. But I didn't see anyone from Texas voting for socialism, you know? And because I grew up in a place where, like, People screamed at me that I was a communist on the school playground as an insult in the third <laughs> grade. That is how they bullied me, was by yelling at me that I was a communist. Uh, well, you, know, you know you're doing something right when that's... It, uh, exactly. Like, now I'm like, yes. But at the time, I go home and ask, Mom, what's a communist? <laughs> and then I was like, Mom, why is it bad to be a communist? Which is the next question. But late, uh, after the election... Yeah, I couldn't bring myself to campaign for Hillary. I just couldn't. I, um, especially, but, you know, after the election, I realized how broken the system was and I started looking for ways to get involved. And um, the Birmingham DSA formed January, 2017, but I didn't find out about it till like May. And that's when I joined that June. Mm. Um, but I started to get involved and I've been involved with like a lot of those like move on type protests. And I was like, these are useless. We are just laying down in public spaces like to 
appear dead to protest the lack of health care. This is not changing anything. We need to make systemic changes, you know, and a lot of those small white guilt protests um, from January till that June. And then uh, uh, finding the DSA. Uh, um, I was also teaching debate in Alabama. My students taught me a ton and people I taught with taught me a ton. And that's when I started to develop, like, there's this amazing badass socialist that I worked with. Mm. And, like, hearing Mary's perspective really opened my eyes. So what got you from the from the Boston area to Alabama? Work. Um, I found an opportunity teaching high school debate. And oh. I knew I wanted to take some time off med school. And I knew that I would never move to the South for any other reason. Because Texas isn't really the South. It's the South by Southwest, especially, like, my part of Texas. Um, and I've been praying, I'm pretty religious and I've been praying for a while. Like I couldn't bring myself to commit to quit debate, but I was like, why am I still doing this? Why am I doing an activity that, you know, I was good at, but I wasn't ever going to be the greatest because I was in that lost year. You know, I didn't get the mentoring I, I needed. And also like, I didn't, my mind didn't quite I didn't jump to the neoliberal answers everyone else did. And, you know, I was the diversity chair of the college debate team, uh, uh, not just our team, but the entire circuit. So I was like, okay, I'm doing some good here. But at the end of the day, this doesn't make any impact on the outside world. And I told myself I was using debate as a tool to to, uh, basically as a wedding stone to gain the tools to change the system. But then, you know, debate's what got me into college. It's the number one predictor of academic success in college among extracurriculars. And I wanted to give kids the opportunity to have it that otherwise wouldn't. Okay. And my debate teacher was like my dad in, co- in high school. Because when you're doing co- high school debate, you leave for a tournament at like, you have to be there at 4 p.m. Friday and you stay till 10 p.m. Saturday. Yeah. And so like, I saw him more than I did my own dad. And, you know, that was home for me. He's still one of the people I see every time I'm back in town. My high school debate team, like the only people I keep in touch with is that for like two other people from home. And so it was family. And I wanted to be that for somebody else. And so then what gets you from Alabama to Jersey? Med school. Okay. Yeah. So that was still that was still with the intention of being a psychiatrist. Yeah, child psychiatrist. Only like only goal in life from fourteen. I mean, I had other goals, but like that was the be all end all from fourteen to twenty seven, and then I had to leave because of health reasons really recently, and that sucked a lot. And that's when I was just like, I gotta get out of Dodge. I can't be in a place that just reminds me of what could have been right on and so now you're now you're in alabama so what kind of stuff have you been getting into um with the dsa over the years yeah so in alabama i ran our feminism committee and one of our big activities is we partnered well not partnered we our members also worked with like basically formed a chapter of a nonprofit 
that, you know, obviously couldn't be affiliated for political reasons, but we, uh, we, uh, we, everybody that was in the nonprofit worked with the DSA, basically a period, which gives out menstrual hygiene products to people in need and campaigns for menstrual hygiene equality. So like uh, Warren and a bunch of other senators worked to pass a bill where uh, hygiene product, menstrual hygiene products would be in prisons, but that only works for federal prisons, not for jails, not for detention centers, not for juvie. And so we were campaigning for that. The Alabama legislator filibustered it because Alabama has this bananas rule that if the sheriff has an excess in his budget, he gets to keep the money personally. He just gets to pocket it. And so the sheriff was friends, uh, a prominent sheriff was friends with the chair of the Senate committee that gets to decide uh, which bills make it to the floor. So that bill never made it to the floor, but which was infuriating as fuck. And then, um, so we, we did that. We would provide, we would just have a hot meal for folks every two weeks in the park campaigning for school board officials that would have good, that would create meaningful change. Um, like the DSA was working on a lot of other stuff down there too, but those were the main ones I was involved with. So, you know, my apartment became like every two weeks, I made probably about 40 servings of cornbread and chili um, <laughs> and uh, delivered it in the park. Um so that, that was awesome. Then in Jersey, I couldn't be as active um, because of med school, but I was really involved with Book City Mutual Aid. So giving, I like delivering groceries to folks during the pandemic. Mm. And we did some labor and um, helped with food distributions with the Ramapo Lenape tribe in solidarity with their efforts. And went to, I've been to a, ton of protests with the DSA, uh, you know, on racial justice, on health care, on immigration, um, both in Alabama and in G- Jersey. And let's see anything else. Um, and through the DSA, I got involved with Black Lives Matter Patterson. Mm-hmm. And you started a, a caucus in our chapter. Yeah. So we were like a safe place for queer socialists and also just like an educational space for the rest of the chapter. Did some efforts like writing to uh, people who are incarcerated, things like that. Hmm. So what do you think is going to be the important battles for socialists moving forward? I mean, in some ways they are what they always are. But what do you think in the next in the next few years is going to be? some of the, 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 the places that DSA and, and socialists in general might want to focus? I think we need to focus on where liberalism is failing because the next two years are going to be crucial. Um, Biden is not going to get shit done. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might save us from COVID, but that's about it. And, it, you know, we need to present a viable alternative to Democrats, because if we do not make advantage, like the Democrats are not going to take advantage of the fact they're the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And people are going to see that, and it's going to turn red again. It's going to be 2010 all over again. And, you know, we might not get it back. You know, anything resembling the left might not get it back for a while. Mm. 
And so this is like do or die time. So we need to run candidates that, you know, present a strong alternative. And so that way, when liberalism fails us like, like it's going to do, people see a way out. And I think mutual aid is really important as well in building up an answer that is not reliant on the state. And I think also making sure we're intersectional, that, you know, still in the chapters, I mostly see white folk, mm-hmm. not, you know, and that is a big problem. And, you know, looking at who's running the room um, and that so and that we're and that we're not just focused on theory of old dead white men, but promoting new theory that's coming out. Right. Yeah, no, that's an important part of of moving forward in the 21st centuries, you know. So let me ask you a, a different question. You know, we, we've talked about some pretty serious topics. What do you do for escape, for self-care, for fun uh, when you're not, uh, not you know, um, organizing and going to protests and that sort of thing? Yeah, so um, my cat is somewhere around here. She is like my main source of escape. Mm-hmm. I really like watching my grumpy cat explore the world. And when it wasn't COVID times, I performed as a drag king. That's actually how I started to explore my gender. Um, and I've done some like stand up in New York City. I've done some drag shows in Philly. I'm excited to do it again in Birmingham after COVID. I like dabble in creative writing and visual arts. And like, especially when I took some time off med school and was teaching debate in Harlem. And when I was had a nine to five job, I was, you know, making art again and writing. And I love cooking. I think that's why I'm drawn to the mutual aid caucuses because it's a release for me. Yeah, just hanging out with my friends, going hiking. Mm. Right on. So what's the latest uh, on the ground in, in Alabama? You said you were doing some work with the uh, um, the Amazon unionization movement there. Yeah. So I just moved back as of Thursday. But um, for, you know, those of us who haven't had the chance to see it or have been taking like a hiatus from the news, Amazon union workers or, or Amazon workers have gotten the chance to union, or through intensive, intensive work union organizers are trying to unionize. And there's a vote that all workers have received in the mail. So they got the ballot on March 1st and they have to mail it back by March 30th. So right now we're trying to show solidarity and support with the workers to show that the community has their back. So we're canvassing community members to put up signs in their yards were like standing out by the warehouse gates to show support for the union and anything to show that like basically what if they sign yes that the community is here for them and we're not just going to throw them to the wolves Mm. and so working on that and one and two of my dear friends asher and lilith um uh, they started a free store here and just what it sounds like, everything in the store is free. One's entirely on donations and a Patreon. And they get um, emergency contraception from a, like, from a fund here. 
that provides it to help meet the and that help and the yellow hammer fund helps meet the gaps for people who can't afford an abortion. But um, you know, I've been working with the free store and they just they're open three days a week, giving anything, you know, anything from clothes to books to you know, hand sanitizer to food in the free pantry. Um, so that's been uh, great. Right on. So it, it seems like you have a, a, a definite mix of, um, you know, uh, a, a clear when it comes to like, you know, strategy, you know, there's a focus on the electoral piece. Right. But also on sort of the on the ground organizing and, and mutual aid as well. Yeah. Um, of, of those of those two, which do you think is I shouldn't say more important, but but what what's the bigger slice of the pie when it comes to what 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 gets your your energy or or where socialists might want to want to focus their energies? So I think for me personally, I find a more joy in direct service, um, like campaigning for something that's going to happen in 10 years that you're, you're electing a candidate who will help make it easier for another candidate who will make it easier for another candidate to get this down the road is I don't mean, get me wrong. I'm glad to do the boots on the ground work, but it's not where my heart lies. Um, Cause I like to do something that's going to make someone's life better today, right now. And I think in COVID we need mutual aid more than ever is really shown that, but I don't think we can, like, I think a lot of socialists, you know, are frustrated with electoral politics. And it's like, let's just wash our hands of the whole system, you know, create our own, you know, alternatives. And I, I don't think we can viably do that because we don't exist in a vacuum. Mm. And, you know, and that's abandoning a lot of communities. So I think it's really just like, I think it depends on the time of the year right now when there's no when we just finished an election cycle, maybe may, like I feel like it's 60 40 and it just shifts back and forth mm-hmm. on the time of the year, what, what's going on in the world. And right now, with COVID and we just finished this election cycle, it should be like 60% mutual aid, but 40% should be holding Biden's feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. Because that's what I'm most afraid of right now. And when it comes to American politics, is that all the liberals are going back to brunch. And everybody's forgetting about the kids in cages and yep. the bombing of Syria. Yep. And it, it's funny. We, you, you know that, um, I think it's Catherine Hahn from WandaVision that she's winking and it's just become like this big meme. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there was one I, I saw. Uh, it was just clips, little sound clips of Biden saying like minimum wage of $15. And then she's winking, you know, and then, yeah. you know, not no deportation in the first hundred days. And then, you know, she's winking. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. Like you said, people are so relieved that it's not Trump, but like for folks like you and I, he's already been a, a, a disappointment in the first two months. Yeah. And I can just like, I hear so many people being like, Oh, it's great that, you know, we don't have to worry about this or those, those signs that you saw people like coming at, like, especially early on, like, you know, at the twenty you know, 17 women's march of, you know, if Hillary had won, I would be at brunch right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that mentality terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I definitely agree that that sort of, that sort of complacency and relief and, and, and this idea that everything's back to normal and that normal was okay to begin with and all, all that. Yeah. Um, we did a, we did a, a political education event 
in the North Jersey chapter. And uh, the title was something like not going back to brunch or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I also like being in the college debate sphere. I've like, like I have a lot of people that, you know, I'm five years out and especially the people that are older than me in the sphere, you know, are like eight years out of college. And, you know, like I recognize names on they're sending like emails campaigning for Biden, you know, that, you know, like, oh yeah, I debated against that guy. And so I remember I have a lot of those politicos that I see on my Facebook timeline um, that I keep just to kind of remind myself what that mentality is like. Mm. And it's that, you know, and that sense of decency and, you know, fitting the Washington norms. And I think that's what offended people most in that sphere. It wasn't necessarily what Trump was doing. I mean, they were upset about that, but it was also that he was bucking the norms of what it means to be an American politician mm-hmm. in ways that I think are like his his treatment of anybody that wasn't, you know, a rich, white, cisgender, straight male is terrible. But I think the fact that he bucked Washington norms, like, isn't a problem. In fact, it's probably good. We don't need Washington to be so divorced from the rest of America. But that pearl clutching is what made, uh, you know, my mother kept on saying things like, this is just not the way politics are done. And I'm like, why does it matter the way politics are done? You know, this isn't some like cotillion. This is, you know, what resonates with the people. Yeah. And I think what I'm terrified most of is a Pence presidency because Prince has the same policies, and but Pence would be effective and he wouldn't trigger that same sense of pearl clutching in the politicos. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. He would, he would definitely be a, a much more efficient version of, of that, of that nonsense. So we're about a year almost exactly to when things started getting shut down for, for COVID. What, what have, uh, I mean, it's hard to say like, how has it affected you? Cause like it's affected all of us in so many ways, but, what have been some things that like you've learned during this time or things that, you know, you awoke, you've awa- uh, you've awakened to during this time or um, some revelations of what the world could be during this time? What what has COVID been like for you? So, yeah. So like I took time off med- medical school for health right before COVID and I was teaching debate in Harlem. And then so I went I was doing Zoom schooling and that really showed like a lot of the lacks, uh, the pitfalls in American education. I uh, then was laid off due to budget cuts. And because debate isn't one of those things, isn't the, it's the first thing on the chopping block. You know, you don't need debate during Zoom school. And I was working at a homeless hotline before going back to med school. And so I was seeing how few shelter beds there are in New Jersey and across America, which I knew from working at a shelter, but having to call people and tell them, uh, having to be on the phone with people and tell them that, yeah, there was COVID going on, um, but I'm sorry, you don't have a bed. And, you know, having, I worked for NJ211, which is like, like the main hotline that you call for any social services. And if anybody caused their own homelessness, we couldn't give them, we couldn't put them in a motel. Like we could somebody else. Hmm. And what people consider, uh, what my supervisors consider to be causing their own homelessness, like, 
overheard someone that, you know, in therapy was told uh, to confront her brother about sexually assaulting her. And she was living with her brother after giving rehab and he kicked her out and that was causing her own homelessness. Jeez. Yeah. And my supervisors were like, we can't, because the shelters were at half capacity due to COVID. Right, right. And so you could get a five-day stay at a homeless, at a motel while they figure things out for you. But the thing was, social services never figure things out for someone in five days. So these people were back on the streets. And then you couldn't ever get that five-day motel thing again. And it was just how heartless, and, and not even heartless, just the pure lack of training. Like I was educated in my training class. It was like how to use the hotline services. It wasn't anything about homelessness itself. Mm. Like I didn't learn a thing about that in my class. Like I was honestly correcting my supervisors about stuff because I'd worked in shelters. I'd worked on rape crisis lines and they hadn't. Right. And I never wanted to be, it made me realize how much like, the people that are the ones having to call the cops because, you know, there are times my supervisors made me that were at the bottom of the totem pole that the ones higher up, they can wash their hands of this, you know, and how broken the system is, you know, mm. and how trapped we all are in it. And, you know, I was a considered like I was hired as a temp worker, you know, I'm, making below 15 an hour and you know i'm the one having to call the cops if i think someone's having a mental health crisis or you know and we don't have anybody else to send there it also made me realize it was the first time in my life that i wasn't like working and either applying for school or going to school and so i had like a nine to five schedule during covid and especially when I was laid off about how much like the 40 hour work week is important. Mm. And like when I was only working 40 hours and when I was stuck at home, I could do things like make art again that I hadn't had time to do. Right. It, it let me, it gave me the time to question like, why do we, ha- why do we have so few doctors? Why do we have so few spots in medical school? Why can't we make medical school less of a, st- a stressful rat race? And we spread out this learning, like starting it, you know, when you first get to college, the way Europe does, and make it less stressful and have doctors that work 40 hour weeks. Because we, the system doesn't want to, we don't want to pay enough people a salary that they could cover their med, their med school loans, right. you know, and we're just creating, you know, like the highest number of deaths are right before a shift change because doctors are exhausted in the hospital. And see, and seeing like my friends who are out of med school and in residency and how burnt out they were and the toll it took on the medical community and physician suicide rates, which are already two to four times that of the, of the population, skyrocketing even more was terrifying because we don't protect and then how much we're not protecting everybody else down the totem pole Mm. for all of this. We support our heroes, um, you know, healthcare heroes, you know, clapping our hands, bullshit for a front yard sign. We bought, what if we 
you know, spent that money making sure that like an LPN who's making, you know, subpar wages and is the one giving out the vaccines could actually, you know, have enough to eat. So that way that poor EMT gal isn't, um, isn't having to work two jobs and getting shit from the world for having an OnlyFans. Now, if she wants to have an OnlyFans because she likes having an OnlyFans, good for her. But, you know, that shouldn't be a choice she's forced into making. Right on. Yeah. And what, what scares me is that as, these, as the vaccines get rolled out more, that just like uh, sort of broadly, politically speaking, people are going to give a sigh of relief and say we're back to normal now that Trump isn't in yeah. the- they're going to do the same thing with, with COVID now and none of the lessons are going to be learned. Exactly. And it's also right now you see who's getting the vaccines that, you know, they're not doing vaccine clinics in low income neighborhoods and that mostly white people are getting the vaccines and who the vaccines were tested on and the thousands of reasons why the black community is the hardest hit Mm -hmm. and will continue to be the hardest hit. Because even the best vaccines are only 90 to 95% effective, which sounds really effective until you think that that means one in 10 to one in 20% of people into one in 20 people can still get the virus. So we need everybody to take it. We need herd immunity. And the frontline people are still going to be the ones to get sick. Right. No, for sure. And the global health inequalities of who's getting the vaccine right now. Absolutely. Yeah. I saw, um, speaking of race in this, uh, I saw a map of Chicago where, where the COVID deaths were and where the vaccines have been. And all the COVID deaths were in, you know, the communities of color or I shouldn't say all, you know what I mean? The, the, yeah. the majority of them and, and the vaccines are all now being given in the white neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it really does scare me that people are going to People are going to, you know, not learn some of the lessons and, and see some of the opportunities that we could have had um, for building a better world. And that's why, you know, we do what we do with uh, DSA and whatnot. Yeah. Well, really want to thank you for your time. I uh, really appreciate you coming, uh, coming by on, on a Sunday and after having just moved to a new <laughs> area again. And uh, and uh, and being open and, and talking about a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, weighty stuff. So thank you very much for 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 talking to me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. OK, so that was my conversation with Theodore profiling another socialist on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'll be trying to have Theodore on another time so we can peel the onion a little bit more on some of the topics we discussed. You can go to BrianTalksToHumans.net for more information, including social media info and the opportunity to contribute to the cause via Patreon. Thanks for listening. That's it for now. Stay human. <laughs>